This is Asian Insider and I'm Nirmal Ghosh. Now on February 27th, Iran's health ministry spokesman said that out of a total of 245 positive cases of infection with the COVID-19 coronavirus, 26 had died. That means Iran has the highest reported number of deaths from the coronavirus outside China, raising questions about how the government is handling this public health crisis and whether it has been fully transparent. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Sarah Parkinson, Assistant Professor of Political Science and International Studies at Johns Hopkins University here in DC. Dr. Parkinson's research examines organizational behavior and social change in the context of war and disaster, focusing on the Middle East and North Africa. And Dr. Orkide Behruzan from the Department of Anthropology and Sociology at SOAS at the University of London, who is currently in Boston, I believe. Dr. Behruzan is an author and anthropologist of medicine, science, and technology. Thank you both very much for sparing time for us this evening. Thanks, Dr. Behruzan. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Dr. Berozan. Perhaps I can start with asking you, I know it's a very broad question, but what is going on in Iran? Iran has not been as well covered as other countries like, of course, China is, is one thing, but then we have a lot of news out of South Korea where there's also been a big outbreak and so forth, but not much understanding of Iran. Could you enlighten us a bit on that? Um, good evening. Um, the question of what's going on in Iran is, uh, is uh, as you mentioned, a very big question. Um, what we do know is that certain statistics are coming out, but I also want to emphasize that we have to um, we have to take uh, statistics um, with a very um, uh, critical look, and we cannot take numbers at face value because a lot of contradictory reports are coming out of Iran at the moment. Um, one of the things that's happening is that we do know that there was delay in diagnosis, as in many other places, and also there was delay in action. Uh, unfortunately, the the early cases were not um, uh, the information about the early cases were not uh, uh, spread and shared uh, in a timely manner. And we also do know that um, despite diagnosis, despite confirmation of diagnosis, um, certain measures were not taken, and experts calls for. For example, um, limiting movement uh, in and around uh, the city of Qom or um, stopping flights to and from mm -hmm. China uh, were ignored. So we, this, this is what we do know. And we also know that um, there are certain, uh, at the moment, uh, you know, given the visibility and the mode of transmission of the virus and also the speed with which the virus is spreading, um, it's become a, a challenge to, um, to, in a way, manage information. So there is a, the, the main uh, defining factor in this epidemics right now in Iran uh, is the way in which it's been politicized and the securitization, securitization of information has been a major issue. Um, we don't know uh, which parts of this information have been suppressed and which parts have been have, have come out in a timely manner. We do know that certain people who have been um, uh, talking about the virus early on have been uh, pressured um, or, or warned. Uh, we also do know that medical staff are um, under immense pressure inside Iran uh, and they're um, doing the best they can, but the situation is very complicated in part due to sanctions 
sanctions. Uh, mm-hmm. And I can talk a little bit more about the, the impact of sanctions on the situation uh, later. Uh, but what is important is the way that because the epidemic has become extremely politicized, um, we, it's very hard to know which uh, part of this information that you just shared is uh, is um, more reliable than other parts. Um, there are there is speculation that the numbers that are uh, coming out are only the tip of the iceberg but but again that, that's countered by other narratives uh, that mm-hmm. you see from different sources that are saying so the the, the main way the information is being uh, you know public awareness is being raised in, in is in two ways it's either one extreme of everything is okay this is just like a flu and the other extreme is um, uh, creating a lot of fear and talking about the fatalities and as you mentioned the fatality rate is high but we have to also remember that uh, fatality rates are high uh, because they also depend on diagnosis. So only severe cases have been, and not all of them, but only severe cases have been tested. So mm-hmm. it is it is expected that a larger number of people are infected but have had mild or moderate uh, manifestations. And therefore, if you take them into account, the fatality rates change. So this is another way in which we have to be careful about how um, figures and statistics, uh, how data is collected and how data is distributed. It's very easy to to talk about mortality rates without, but without having mm-hmm. number of diagnosed cases, it's very hard to um, mm-hmm. to talk about. So all of these numbers are still in the making. Um, one of the things we do know is that the severe cases um, in, in clinically, the, uh, the manifestations have been likened to what doctors have seen in H1N1, uh, but it's also spreading at a rate similar to pandemic flu. So those um, those two facts pose um, very severe challenges to to um, uh, clinical decisions and and the, the way doctors are handling this. Some reports are coming out of Iran uh, from the hospitals, from clinicians, um, and um, and it's been mentioned again. All of these are personal accounts and individual accounts. Um, and you know, I'd like to emphasize that different kinds of information are coming out. But a lot of them are talking about the fact that they're not at liberty to mm-hmm. discuss details. And that says something. That tells us a lot about how mm-hmm. information is being uh, policed in this instance. And you know, with any, I mean, this is one of the. Uh, the reasons why it's important to look at epidemics, not just in terms of the biological aspects and the virus and, you know, whatnot, but also in terms of uh, the sociopolitical and the historical context of epidemics. Mm-hmm. Epidemics are, by definition, both medical and sociopolitical and historical entities. And their manifestation uh, depends on that uh, uh, you know, socio-historical context, even their biological manifestation can change. And so in the case of Iran, we also are looking at a very severe case of, um, uh, if you will, mismanagement of not just the epidemic, but also public anxiety in relation to mm-hmm. it. And that's extremely dangerous because, um, you know, this is why context again matters. In the past few months, Iran has um, seen extremely difficult days, and Iranian Iranians in general have gone through um, a roller coaster of um, of uh, really tragic events, including mm-hmm. the crackdown 
protests in November, and then the tragedy of um, the downing of the passenger plane, the Ukrainian airline plane, uh, and and then um, in the context of the protests, also the shutdown of the internet. In all of those mm-hmm. instances, besides the the tragedy of the event, there was cover-ups, and there was. Um, a sense in which that where you know people are being lied to, and that context is important because it means that right now whatever information is coming out, even with delay, right now there is some information coming out from the establishment. Some uh, you know information awareness is being spread through the media, uh-huh. but trust is extremely damaged and at a very um, low point. And so this also creates a lot of anxiety that's unwarranted um, and a lot of misinformation is being circulated. And this is why I urge people to look at what clinicians are saying. Um, My colleagues in Iran are actually spreading information that is more reliable than than the media and especially than domestic and and Persian-speaking media. Okay, Dr. Parkinson, perhaps I can bring you in on this. What are the implications of this um, outbreak in uh, in Iran for not just Iran for for the wider region. You've you've tweeted about the risk to states in the Levant, you know, states like Lebanon, Palestine, Syria, and of course Israel. And there has been talk of it getting getting into Africa, of course, as well. What would what is your take on that? Well, in terms of the larger region, one of or two things to sort of remember is that this is an extraordinarily interconnected region, um, both because of trade, but also because of travel for schooling, for pilgrimage, and even for specialty healthcare. As um, you know, as medical anthropologists like um, Max Skelton have pointed out, um, it's also an international transit hub when it comes to Gulf Airlines, for example. So. What you have is a lot of movement, and that's not even to get into forced migration. You know, there is currently mm-hmm. a crisis in Idlib with Syrian refugees, where a million people are are basically fleeing Idlib. Um, so, in this particular setting where there is interconnectedness, there's also an issue with the condition of health systems. Now, I want to emphasize that there is immense skill and knowledge of medical providers in these systems. But one of the issues is that many of them are currently weak because of ongoing or recent conflicts. Um, For example, uh, the Syrian medical system has been severely affected by conflict, as have parts of the Iraqi system. Uh, Mosul University was, of course, a hub of medical knowledge in Iraq, Uh and that's a university that's still undergoing recovery right now. Um, In Lebanon, it's worth noting that they're, they've experienced at this point 134 days of protests, that there is a massive financial crisis, and that uh-huh. even in a context where there is immense medical skill, there have been shortages, and there is serious concern that the medical uh, system is not prepared to take a major crisis at this juncture. Uh, layering onto all of that in individual countries, there are differing levels of trust in the government. Uh, In Uh Lebanon, again, for example, trust in government, parliament and civil society, according to Arab Barometer, is extraordinarily low and has fallen Uh since the Arab uprisings. Most people believe that corruption is endemic. Only about Uh 20 percent of Lebanese say that they trust the government, parliament or judiciary. Now, importantly, Uh trust in private institutions is higher and most of the medical system is private. 
Um, but in this case, that means that about 43% of people report having either some or great trust in private hospitals. Um, uh -huh. The, you know, very few, and it's important to also emphasize that there are very few coronavirus patients right now in Lebanon. Um, it's either two or three, depending on which reports you go by. They're in Rafiq Hariri University Hospital. Um, uh -huh. But again, to pick up on this point that epidemics are both medical and social events, they're also uh, political events. So one of the things to think about here is that in settings where there is immense inequality, where there are huge debates over the future oh. of refugee populations, what we're seeing now even is the scapegoating or um, you know, extraordinarily unnecessary um, sort of painting of refugees as threats, which is not at all the case here. Um, I like to emphasize uh -huh. that bad healthcare management or bad healthcare governance is a threat, that bad crisis management is a threat, and that, you know, this, that coronavirus really doesn't care about nationality. But you do see people taking this opportunity to sort of forward particular political narratives. Um, about refugees. We saw yesterday in one Lebanese municipality, all Syrian refugees being placed under a mandatory two-week quarantine um, when uh -huh. no Syrian cases have been identified. In Lebanon, the two cases um, arrived on a plane from Iran. So that's just uh -huh. sort of one view of how the greater political context can interact with a health event like an epidemic to create the conditions of discrimination and repression. Okay, I think it was also you who had mentioned an interesting aspect, uh, and uh, uh, we, we're almost out of time, but I want to squeeze in a couple more questions. You had mentioned an interesting aspect that it's not just doctors and epidemiologists who should have input in these crises. You need medical anthropologists, which who were essential during the Ebola uh, epidemic, perhaps um, because they could help develop appropriate interventions. Perhaps you could elaborate a little bit on that? Sure. And I think this, uh, you know, gets to Dr. Behrouzan's point as well. Um, one of the things to remember is that diseases don't occur in a laboratory environment. They occur in the, in the context of broader society. So oh. people like medical anthropologists, people who study healthcare systems in public health schools, uh, political scientists who study the politics of healthcare, for example, in the United States, which is obviously, you know, a hot button issue in our in our current electoral cycle. Um, all of these people can sort of inform broader analyses and understandings of this epidemic and and what the unexpected um, issues might be. So one of the examples from West Africa during the Ebola crisis, for example, was that several states were in would be considered you know post conflict settings and the idea of holding up a thermometer that in many cases actually looks like a pistol um, the thermometers that i've seen are you know uh -huh. they're it's like a white pistol shaped thing with an actual trigger so the idea of holding that to someone's head when they've experienced a war feels very very threatening in a way that someone in another context might not experience that um, to give a different setting, some of the work that I've done on Leban in Lebanon on the politics of healthcare access for refugees has uh -huh. been sort of focused on what is the actual experience of seeking medical care. So one measure of, me of access to healthcare might be, is there a hospital within an hour drive or a four hour drive? Um, right. In a place like Beirut, there are multiple exceptional hospitals that are very close by in the city. Uh -huh. But the question is, if you're someone who is undocumented, if you are someone who 
Syrian intelligence is seeking if you are someone oh. who is documented but doesn't have enough money to pay for private care how are you uh -huh. going to seek care? And you start to see all of the barriers that might be thrown up in what is seemingly a place with, you know, exceptional healthcare access. And you can sort uh -huh. of see people working through, oh, if I go to this hospital versus this hospital, how much will it cost? How many checkpoints are between me and the hospital? What are the risks to anyone who goes with me? And yeah. that's how we start to see this sort of broader socio-political context of disease and can think through, well, if we have thousands of people who are afraid to seek health care, it's a very different story than a system in which people feel very confident accessing the health care system. Right. Dr. Merusan, a quick last question to you very briefly. It's interesting that the United States is also scrambling and many experts say it is unprepared for a crisis of this magnitude. Um, a more unprepared. It has also hit South Korea and Iran, not to speak of China, but we are seeing how a democracy where at some point restrictions may well rub up against human rights, uh, but is way more transparent, how such a political system and culture deals with this crisis compared with China. And you have these other variations with their unique histories and cultures. So perhaps a last quick word from you on that, uh, on the cultural context, Dr. Berezan. Uh so the, the key question that's being asked in relation to Iran is that, uh, you know, why uh, action was not taken when it should have been taken, when the cases were diagnosed, what, why information was suppressed, why why it took um, longer than it should have, mm -hmm. or, and also what, when we knew that, you know, we have uh, the epidemic on our hands, why the city of Qom was not, you know, um, uh, dealt with in, in a way that, for example, the shrines are still open and people are doing communal prayers um, uh, and flights continued um, uh, to and from China and so on and so forth. But to understand that, we need to understand the context of policymaking and these decisions because it's very, you know, the, the, the main thing is why uh -huh. experts are asking for something and the establishment is not responding to that. Now, this is why it's important, you know, as a clinician, I can re relate to um, the calls that the experts are making for these measures to be uh, to be put into place. But also as an anthropologist, I can see how complex it is to just, you know, this is not something you can reduce to, well, experts are asking something and a religious uh, establishment is refusing to do that. Because right. it's not the first time that in Iran we're dealing with the cover-up of information. Um, a, a very important historical precedence is the HIV AIDS epidemic that came mm -hmm. to Iran, uh, was confirmed, the first came was con case was confirmed in 1986, but after that you had a decade of, uh, of denial on the part of the establishment. When you look at Corona, the cover-up is um, in a way different because it's a political cover-up. The reason in part why the infection wasn't discussed publicly was that there was an election coming up. There were concerns about the public, you know, public participation mm -hmm. and turnout. Um, the mm -hmm. significant, uh, the strategic significance of the city of Gom is also important. Gom is a city with a very, very high turnover of uh, pilgrims, um, both um, from different areas of Iran, but also from abroad, 2.5 million um, uh, pilgrims a year from abroad visit Gom. And so the, uh, the, the the clash between these interests um, prevented mm -hmm. the experts to be able to implement the measures they wanted to implement. One of the one of the important things in, in all of this is that both inside Iran and outside Iran, the, the coverage of the story has become extremely politicized. And mm -hmm. um, I 
I want to actually emphasize the importance of um, critically reading these uh, reportages because inside Iran, the politicization has to do with the events I mentioned, but also has to do with, um, you know, extremes of whether this is nothing or this is the end of the world. And so it leaves very little room for um, accurate information to be circulated. And outside Iran, um, it's been discussed uh, by others that the coronavirus has been uh, as, you know, intertwined with narratives, you know, um, narratives of colonialism and racism. And in the case of Iran, it's also important to understand that it's being uh, intertwined with the with, with the narrative of posing Iran as a threat. And so there is um, there is that danger of numbers. Um, you know, as I said, more fatality rates are being circulated without. We don't know the fatality rates because we don't know the exact number of cases. Exact number. That being mm. said, this is a very important, you know, extremely worrying moment uh, in which even the medical professionals themselves um, are being admitted to the ICU. Many are recovering, but many are not. We also know of at least one nurse who um, unfortunately and sadly lost her life. So there, it's a moment that, you know, the, the, the anxiety that's associated with the disease is not fabricated, it's real, um, as is the virus itself, and it poses a massive you know, challenge to the establishment, um, both in terms of managing the virus and managing the public anxiety around it. Thank you very much, Dr. Berozan, Dr. Parkinson. Thank you very much again for sparing your time for us this evening on this very critical subject. It's a fascinating conversation. Thank you. So as we've heard, the outbreak in Iran took everyone by surprise coming out of the blue and represents a, a very great danger, not only just not only for Iran, but for the rest of the region, where we are dealing with uh, a very varied region with varied uh, you know, kinds of regimes and governments and a lot of refugees, a lot of refugees in conflict and post-conflict areas. Now, uh, a few hours ago, Saudi Arabia announced that it was suspending visas for pilgrims, and that is considered by experts to be a sensible thing to do. For Asian Insider, I'm Nirbal Ghosh.